Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 195. We had a funny thing happen after we launched the Common Misconceptions tool, which is this uh, hedge fund manager reached out to us with this very angry email saying that our tool had told them that he's overconfident and it's totally full of shit and he's not overconfident. <laughs> and then like a month later, he reached back out to us and he's like, oh, you know what? I'm really sorry. I actually realized you're right. I am uh, overconfident. And I've been I've been reflecting on it, and now I'm going to change the way that I, that I you know make trades in my business. So that's the kind of thing we want. So this is another one of those episodes where it's just a conversation, and we just go on mini nested tangents and nerd out over what the expert is an expert in. This expert in this episode is Spencer Greenberg, a mathematician, but more than that, he's someone who decided. You know, all these books, all these podcasts about critical thinking, about biases, about heuristics, about fallacies, stuff like what I make, um, maybe someone should go another step further into that and create a place where you can become a better critical thinker. And he did that. He created clearerthinking.org. And that is really what we're talking about, clearerthinking.org, if nothing else go to that website right now or after you listen to this episode and see all the cool stuff he has there. I have my notes here from all the things that we talked about in this episode. Let me pull it up. And it goes all over the place. We talk about clearerthinking.org quite a bit and all the interactive modules that are free. There are more than 40 free modules on that website you can go to and use to become a better critical thinker or share with someone else you think might, um, how should we say, benefit from that sort of website. Also, we talk about the research that he and his organizations are doing. They, they've gone a step further from just saying, look at all these things you can use to become a better user of your brain. And they're actually doing original research, psychological research into biases and critical thinking, uh, reasoning, decision-making, that sort of thing. We also talk about what beliefs are, how they work, the garden of conscious and unconscious reasoning, uh, system one and system two, his fire method for being a better critical thinker, uh, and everything else from values to creativity to mindfulness to the avail availability heuristic to artificial intelligence to the backfire effect. Uh, you're going to love this episode. And not only can you go to clearerthinking.org, you can also go to spencergreenberg.com and find links to all of his stuff. And he is also on Twitter at S P E N C R. Greenberg, G-R-E-E-N-B-E-R-G. 
I love his Twitter. He's always putting up polls that are challenging, and the results are often very surprising. In fact, uh, let's see, his most recent one is, when it comes to holidays where gifts are usually exchanged in both directions, so you are usually expected to both give and receive, what honestly would be your ideal setup if no one was offended and no one was ever bothered? And the four choices were the standard thing we always do now, give and get, or I give but don't receive, or I receive but don't give, or no gifts are exchanged. The distribution is totally not what I've expected. So far, no exchanging of gifts is winning, and I honestly do not like that. What is wrong with y'all? <laughs> also, uh, in addition to all these other things, he has a podcast, and that podcast has episodes like Scientific Progress, Enlightenment, Sex Work. He, he speaks with Ayala, who is very uh, popular on Twitter as a sex worker, and he has an episode where he discusses her thoughts on how that plays out in the modern environment. Ayala also puts out a lot of uh, tweets with very challenging and strange polls, which is worth checking out. What is her handle? Hold on. It is A-E-L-L-A underscore girl on Twitter. Other topics on his podcast. Liberalism, conservatism, psychedelics, comfort languages, education, negotiation. It's a great podcast. So if you're a fan of this, you'll be a fan of his, I promise. Go to Clearer Thinking Podcast if you want to find his stuff, his episodes. Clearerthinking.org. Clearer Thinking Podcast, SpencerGreenberg.com. He also has Guided Track, which is the platform he uses for building behavior change interventions and also conducting complex social science studies. Positly, a platform for recruiting study participants for human subject research, social science, and product research. Uplift, which is an app for helping with depression. Mind Ease, which is an anxiety relieving service for whenever you need it and Thought Saver, which is a tool for helping you remember everything important, everything that you learn that you think you need to save. He has a tool for that called Thought Saver. All of these things, links to all of these things are over at his website, spencergreenberg.com. All right, let's talk to him. Here we go, Spencer Greenberg, let's pick his brain. My name is Spencer Greenberg. I'm a mathematician, and I also run a company called SparkWave, and we do a lot of social science research, and we build products that try to help improve people's lives through the intersection of software and social science. Um, you know, what's really weird about this is uh, so, so many people have said, uh, you should meet this guy and uh, just do it on the podcast. And I was like, okay, uh, it's cool. I love that people out there in the world were like, Hey, have do you know this person? And we're, we live in complete. We live a thousand miles away from each other, and they were like, "You should hang out." I think that's just really cool. Well, do you know the story of how <laughs> how I ended up on this podcast today? Tell me, tell story. me. I do. I don't know. So I did a tweet about how sometimes I write notes to myself, and I can't remember what they mean, and they're just totally mysterious. So I posted, <laughs> I posted a list of some of my notes to myself that I didn't understand, and one of them, one of the notes to myself was, uh, "You are not so smart. Get on it." <laughs> and so I, I, did, I discovered this note like months later and I was like, what does this mean? Am I <laughs> calling myself an idiot? I don't know. Anyway, so this was in my tweet about 
about uh, notes about stuff that I can't understand. And one of my Twitter followers was like, maybe you meant you wanted to read the book. You're not so smart. And I was like, oh, maybe that kind of rings a bell. It doesn't feel quite right. And then someone else was like, oh, maybe someone said to you, you should try to get on the podcast. You're not so smart. I'm like, oh, my God. I think that is what that note means. <laughs> and then a third of my Twitter followers is like, I tagged you and say, Hey, you should have him on your podcast. That is, so, that is so good. I love that. I also, uh, that, that feels like a note that I've written myself many times. Like you're not so smart. Get on it, man. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. I saw it on Twitter. I was like, yeah, okay, just come on. I don't know. Um, I looked through the stuff you're up to and I was like, Oh God, yeah, he really should be on this show. Especially, uh, I watched your, your, your Ted talk and then I saw what you do and yeah, how have we never met? It's really cool. And then you sent me a list of things we could talk about. I was like, I want to talk about all those things. And then, <laughs> and now that we're like, you know, Twitter friends, you just keep putting out material that I'm like, I want to comment on all this. I don't have time in the day to comment on all these things you're putting out. So this is really fun. I'm really happy that we're meeting each other. I mean, we are literally, for anyone who's listening, we are just, well, this is us meeting each other. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> we, we've had no previous conversation. Well, I'm so happy to be here. And I think this is really cool. Well, uh, so... You uh, have this company, and uh, everything I'm going to ask you is like seriously. I just want to know. Um, I wrote it down here. I took I took some paper notes, and I took some digital notes. Um, this clearerthinking.org. What is it? What is it all about? Why did you make it, and what does it do? Yeah, so clearerthinking.org is a website we run where we have about 40 free tools and training programs that are all about thinking better, making better decisions, forming better habits. And we started it really as a not-for-profit project, originally based on the idea that there are all these really cool and useful insights from academia that people then don't end up applying in their own lives. And we think part of the reason for that is because, you know, there'll be, there'll be an interesting insight in a paper, but it's not in a form most people can use. And then best case scenario, it ends up in a blog or a book where it might be useful, but still people may have trouble translating it from I'm reading on the page to like I'm using it. So our idea was to try to create interactive modules where you don't just learn concepts, but as you're learning them, you're actually applying them to your life. You're applying them to different scenarios. You're being assessed on them and so on. So that was really the origin story of clear thinking. And now we've been running for quite a few years. The, the project's kind of evolved. And one of the ways it's evolved is we now run more and more of our own social science research because we'll take these ideas from academia that are really interesting, but then we'll say, oh, wait, in order to actually apply this in the real world, there needs to be some last mile research where we try to translate it and make it more useful. Um, and so that's been an ongoing thing where we're running our own longitudinal studies and randomized control trials and so on to try to push the envelope on kind of what's known about some of these topics. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that is super rad. Like, what is something you're working on like right now? What's like fresh on your mind? Uh, right. So one thing, one thing we're working on right now is we have a partnership with some really great academics, including, including, uh, David Yaden, and what, what they do is they study the psychology of philosophy. So basically, do our differences in psychological traits actually influence our philosophical beliefs? And so they have a paper that's about to come out and they got in touch with me uh, about doing a collaboration. So we actually made a tool where you can actually measure your philosophical beliefs on many of the major philosophical questions that academic philosophers study um, and then you can also learn about how those are related to, to psychological variables. So we're going to release this probably in like the next month or so. This philosophy oh cast. man, you are talking my language. Um, please send that to me. Anything you have, any literature you have on that, I would love to take a look at it. This is exactly Absolutely. what I'm like jamming on right now. Um, you created this list of ways that we can disagree, and I am extremely fascinated with this. And it seems like uh, this 
this paper you were talking about, about philosophical ideas and how they comport to psychological constructs is part of that conversation. For me, the really important thing that's happening here, and I'll hand off to you to see what you think after this, is um, a whole lot of what philosophy does and what art does and what science does is simply at at this point, talking about things like this, which are very difficult to put into words, is just to put them into words, to articulate what is currently ineffable about these ideas. And then once we can agree on the terms for what those terms represent, we can then communicate back and forth and then can build a foundationally on those and make models. And I've realized in trying to write a book about this, that we are really at the beginning of that concerning things that I thought we had settled, beliefs, attitudes, values, because you can ask a thousand people, uh, I've asked, I've asked hundreds of, sci- of scientists, what is, what is your definition of belief? And I have so many definitions for belief at this point that, um, I'm had, I've had to pull back and think, I think I needed to define this for myself. And I was interested that that's something you're doing too. So what are your thoughts on all that stuff I just threw at you? Yeah, that's a great and big question. So two, two kind of general categories. The first is what are the different types of beliefs? And the second, why do people disagree? And these are both things that I have recently been writing some stuff about. I think part of the reason we get so confused about beliefs is that there are a lot of mental states that are belief-like, meaning that you can interpret them as a sort of belief. But because there are many different such mental states, when someone says, oh, he believes this or she believes that, we really don't necessarily know which type of mental state they're referring to. Mm -hmm. I divide them up into three big categories of mental states. The first is explicit beliefs. Uh, So an example of that would be, you might say, you know, I am a Republican or I am a Democrat or something like this. And this is like a very explicit belief that you like verbalize and you endorse and you might be willing to post on, you know, your Facebook wall or something like that. And I think a lot of times when people talk about belief, they, they kind of think of that, oh, that's the only kind of belief, which is, which is totally not true as, as I hope I'll I'll convince you all in a moment if you don't really (laughs) believe me. Um, uh, a second type of belief that's kind of explicit is when you say something or hear something and you get this feeling about how much you believe it. Mm-hmm. So let's say someone makes a claim to you, you know, like most dogs have four legs. You know, you you kind of reflect on that statement. And you just get this internal feeling. It's it's a qualia. It's a sense that, yeah, 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 that, that's true. Whereas if they say most dogs have nine legs, you know, you have this immediate sense, like just internal feeling that there's something wrong and off about that. Yeah. Um, a, th- a third type of explicit belief is a belief by implication. So, for example, the number 362,974, you probably believe that's a number. There's a certain sense in which you probably believed it was a number before I said it, even though you'd never actually thought about that specific number before, right? So, why? And there's a certain sense in which you already believe it's a number because you have other beliefs about what makes something a number that implies it's a number, even though you've never had that particular number crossed to your mind. Okay. I dig this a lot. Uh, you know, in psychology, they call, they call that a declarative belief when it's just straight up explicit. But the, when you're talking about the feeling thing, that really gets me going because something I use to try to make sense of this here for me lately is this uh, Robert Burton had that book called On Being Certain where he, talk, he, he could not come up with a word for this. So he just said, I call this the feeling of knowing. And I, 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 I uh, anticipated we would talk about this. And I brought this little example of, have you ever heard of this? Uh, if you've heard of this before, just humor me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna demonstrate this for you right now. Okay, this comes from uh, neuroscientist Robert Burton. A newspaper is better than a magazine. Have you ever heard this before? No. Okay. All right. I want you to sample your emotional state right now. Like, do news- I feel that it's true? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than a street. 
At first it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Okay, so like your brain, I'm assuming, is taking all that in and you have all these things that are already part of your model of reality, all part of your experience, part of your neural networks where you're like, sort, sort, sort. Okay, well, what do we do? What do we talk? What are we doing? What are we doing? Like you really, you can feel this emotional state of not knowing, which is what he wants you to feel. And then I can tell you what I'm talking about here is a kite. I'm talking about flying a kite. Ah. Right. And now that is an emotion that you just felt, right? So, and I, and I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read a couple pieces of it. Use, a newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than a street. At first, it's better to run than to walk. And I can go through the whole thing. You can see what's happening. Now there's a completely different emotional reaction you're having to the same data coming in through this, uh, you know, system of, of little barks and whistles and noises that I make that you de deconstruct into some sort of thing that makes sense in your model of reality. But now that you know what I'm talking about, you have a f different feeling than the feeling before that was the feeling of not knowing. And now you're having the feeling of knowing. And he uses that as an example. And I'm interested what, to hear what you think about it. As um, he likes to think of belief as a process and that belief is something that happens to you like hunger and that you have a feeling of certainty that you cannot control or you have a feeling of uncertainty that happens to you. You can't control that. And so it's information that's encoded in the brain. Then you have this emotional reaction to that information and you combine the two and that process is what he considers belief. And then that's why it's so hard to define it as far as he's concerned. Um, to believe or to doubt in that estimation is just, it's just associative, associative networks of neurons weighting certain things more than others. And then the downstream output of that is what we would call the emotional reaction of certainty. And it just happens to us. It reminds me of some stuff you talked about in your TED talk about intuition, because it that's I am not consciously making that happen. It's bubbling up from somewhere, or it's like an advisor from some sort of emotional system. And I find that some, there's something in that that feels like it bridges or Venn diagrams this system one, system two construction of mental states. And I'm just wondering what you think about all of that. Yeah, so I guess the way that I think about the conscious mind and the subconscious mind is I imagine it with a kind of embodied metaphor of a garden. So you're sitting in the garden, which is your conscious mind, and there's this really tall wall all around the around the garden, and outside the wall is the dark forest, and the dark forest is your subconscious. You can never really peer directly over the wall, but what happens is things get thrown over the wall that teach you about what's lurking back there, and you can throw stuff back over the wall. So you can throw a query to your subconscious mind, like what's one plus one, and it will throw back two, <laughs> right? That's so good. Uh, you can throw over the wall what's 47 times 593, and it will throw back question mark because it probably doesn't have an answer to that. Um, and so and so this is kind of how I think about interacting. Most of the stuff is outside the wall, but there's just the, the bit inside the wall is what we usually identify as being us. But that being said, really, the whole thing is us, right? Yeah, we're, we're the entirety so good. of the forest. Yeah. I love that. Oh, my God. That's such a great construction of it. Because, you know, I've, I, we, I just had David Eagleman on he wrote incognito and I've, that's been like a guiding force in my life for a long time. Just that society of mind idea from Marvin Minsky and that he further elaborated with, um, 
the idea that uh, there's a parliament. Uh, David Eagleman likes to say that we feel like we're the captain, but we're really a stowaway, which is just another way of trying to get words to use to make sense of all this. But like, I like your construction a lot because that's more in line with the way I think I, um, I metaphorically try to make sense of all this. That that visualization, that feeling of the beyond the perimeter, throwing ideas, throwing things, and then things coming back. I like that a lot. Thank you very much. I'm going to steal that and use it forever if you don't mind. Yeah. Well, you know, and being a good decision maker and making good judgment is learning how to throw the right things over and then relearning how to interpret okay. you get back. All right. Let's get out of all this uh, bona fide talks that, ha- that happens in the beginning of one of these and get into this because this is really what I'm here to talk to you about because this is what you're doing. You're trying to help people make better decisions and use their minds better and be better metacognitive uh, entities. Um, and I think that's super rad. I think it's so cool that you, you just were like, no, I'll make a company that does this. I'll make a, an organization that's devoted to this. The idea that you like are really getting in there and saying there's a way to like extract some value from all of this uh, in a very practical way. I think it's super cool. One of the things you, I think you sort of threw a gauntlet down with, and I think it's, I felt this because I got into all of this at the, at the tail end of that bubble where there was a lot of uh, finger wagging at the idea of system one thinking, or there was a lot of, um, we were, there were a lot of people saying that human beings were irrational and flawed. And I've been uh, tisk tisked about that quite a bit over my career, especially here recently by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, who very much like to say that the brain or the mind is not, um, it's not flawed and irrational. It's just biased and lazy, which are different things. And, uh, I feel like you're kind of in that camp too, and I'm moving my I'm moving into that camp, and uh, so um, it all depends on your benchmark, right? Like, you know, if you benchmark us against the sp- smartest possible being that could exist, we're pretty dumb. We're pretty <laughs> dumb as a rock. Uh, if you if you benchmark us against a rock, we're pretty smart. So you know. Okay, I can feel that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. If you ever try to show a dog a card trick, they can start to feel pretty good about yourself. Um, but but then you also lock your keys in your car and you send an email to somebody who shouldn't have gotten it. Um, and then you forget why you walked into the kitchen. Uh, and also, I love looking at famous people throughout history who've been considered geniuses and looking at their social lives and private lives and what train wrecks and horrible fires that they've created. <laughs> And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event, and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,025 and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, 
netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. talk about system one and system two and uh, I won't talk over it. Uh, I'd rather you just uh, sort of let's explore how you look at it, but you do make a case for let's not poo poo on system one. System one has a lot to offer if you know how to use it. Right. And I think that is sort of what you're talking about with if you know how to, what to throw over and how to wield it. I want to hear everything you have to say about that. All right. Well, that's that's a big query. Okay. So system one I think the idea of system one and system two, honestly, have been reinvented over and over again throughout yeah. history so many times. Uh, they just and it, literally there are probably 10 different names for each for each of them. But effectively, system one is the fast, automatic, subconscious stuff we do with our mind, you know, vaguely speaking. And system two is the slower, conscious, reflective stuff that takes a lot of working memory. And so the easiest example to differentiate these is. Uh, system one is like if you do one plus one and you just your brain spits out two, there's no thought as far as you're aware. Something's going on. Whereas system two would be like a, a difficult long division problem where you're like working through it consciously using your working memory. So that's an easy, easy way to kind of differentiate them. Um, in practice, we're constantly going back and forth. So system two is often activating system one in order to get things done. Right. So mm-hmm. let's say you're doing a long, a long division problem. There are lots of sub steps where you're like, oh, OK, now I need to, you know, combine these two numbers. And then you're just querying your system one to do that little sub step for you. So it's like system two is like uh, the pilot, but it's like pushing all the system one buttons to actually accomplish anything. And I like so that. I think it's I think it's very silly to think about like, oh, system two is better than system one. It's very ridiculous. It's like saying, oh, you know, your thumb is better than your pinky. It's like, well, that's, you know, you should just use both, right? Um, <laughs> uh, you shouldn't stop using your pinky, even even if your thumb were better, which is, you know. So uh, so that that's kind of broadly how I think about it. Uh, but another thing I think it's worth pointing out is that system one is actually this huge set of stuff. You know, it's everything from like keeping your breathing regulated, right? Which is something you could control with system two, but you usually don't, right? Normally your breathing just regulates automatically. Uh, to uh, memory retrieval, like if you said, you know, think of the last time you used an umbrella, right? Like in some sense, that's your system two querying your system one. Um, And many, many other processes are in system one as well, like your emotional reactions, right? If someone jumps out and surprises you, you're going to feel fear. Like that's not your system two doing that. That's coming from system one. So that's why I like to think of system one as everything outside the, the wall, everything in the dark forest. It's this huge amount of stuff what really binds it together is that we're not aware of what's happening out there. Okay, All yeah. we can see is the result of it, not what's not what's going on underneath. I like how you said in your TED talk, we're not really talking about brain like organically. We're not talking about the we're not really talking about neurons here. We're talking about mind, the emergent properties of what the brain does. And you can see that there are system one sort of organ systems and system two organ systems if you want to construct it that way metaphorically. But you make a, you have this really cool thing that you use as a way of of helping people, it'd be introducing people into what you do, helping them be better decision makers, and you call it FIRE. And uh, I would like you to talk all about that because it's really cool. Yeah, so... There's a big question that comes up. When should you just use your gut or intuition or system one to make a decision? And when should you not just go with your gut, right? When when should you use what I'll call reflective decision-making? And reflective decision-making doesn't mean that you ignore your gut. It it means that your gut's just not in charge of the decision. You're using your reflective mind, your system two, to make the decision. And you're querying your system one in useful ways. 
Whereas going with your gut is like just letting your gut go with the decision. And so there's a simple um, criteria, which I call FIRE, F-I-R-E, which stands for fast. You should use your gut if it's a fast decision. Like you're driving down the road, a car suddenly swerves into your lane and is about to hit you. You do not have time to use your reflection. So you have to use your gut about what to do. And, you know, do you swerve away, mm-hmm. you hit the brake, whatever. So that's an F for fast. Uh, the second is I for irrelevant. Let's say you're at a salad place and you're like, oh man, should I get salad? Should I get carrots on my salad? I don't know. And you're racking <laughs> your brain. It's an irrelevant decision. It's just not worth using your reflection on. So just, you know, pick, go with your gut, pick something. The third type is the most interesting. It's R. Uh, it stands for repetitious decisions. Our intuition or gut can get very good if we have a lot of repetition making a type of decision with feedback. And the mm-hmm. feedback is super critical. Um, and so my, my favorite metaphor for this is imagine archery. So imagine you're you're practicing archery, you pull back your bow, you shoot your arrow, you see where it hits the target. If it hits near the, you know, if let's say it hits a little to the left, okay, now you're going to try again and you're going to adjust your stance just slightly to try to make it go to the right. Okay, so that that's learning with feedback. And over time, you can get an intuition of like, where is this arrow going to go when I pull it back? Mm-hmm. Now imagine you did that blindfolded. You spend all day, every day shooting arrows at a target, but you're blindfolded. You will never get good at archery because you have no feedback. And, uh, you know, another really good example of this is chess. You know, if you look at Magnus Carlsen play chess, yes, he's really good at using his reflective mind, but his intuition is so good. It's absolutely mind blowing. So there's an example you can find online of him playing against three pretty good chess players where he, he has so little time in this game. He's playing against all of them simultaneously. that He has to make a move like within five seconds each time. And he's actually blindfolded playing them and he beats all three of them. So in other words, his intuition of just like boom, boom, boom is better than their like reflection about how wow. to play. Years ago, I had David Epstein on the show and he wrote a book about sports and uh, practice. And he was trying to talk about whether or not the 10,000 hour rule was true or not at the time, which was a thing that a lot of people wanted to like sort out. And uh, it really stuck with me. He was talking about what you're talking about right here. He was talking about baseball players. If um, the human brain doesn't doesn't uh, go from input to make a decision to output to feedback fast enough for you to even hit a baseball. If we were, if we were just basing it off of watching for it to be thrown and then react. And the way that a baseball professional hits a baseball is that they're predicting when the ball will be released from the hand. And that's based off of looking at when somebody's ankle is slowly turning or when their elbow is moving or when their face scrunches up. And then it goes even deeper than that. Like there are things they could never articulate uh, there is a chain of things that they've had experience with that goes deep into in a few seconds, perhaps, or maybe a few milliseconds, this person's about to release this ball at this angle. And if my bat is right here at, at that moment when the two intersect, I'll hit it. And to demonstrate that, he said that when you take a professional baseball player, this has been done scientifically or done in research, uh, and you pit them against softball players who throw slower balls that are bigger they can't hit them. Not at, not at first. They have to relearn how to do that action. It's not like something they've had experience with. And when you were talking about that chess champion, that's what it made me think of. Because he mentions that a little bit too. That it looks like to a layperson that this is like a supercomputer brain that's looking at every possible outcome the way we would do that with artificial intelligence. But it's really experience. It's 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 a person who's played enough chess games that they have this deep intuition about when the board looks like this these things often happen and these moves often work out well for me. And I think that's really super fascinating. If you ever played a video game, you can, and you've felt yourself just slowly get better at it to the point where you don't have to think 
what you are thinking, but you don't have to consciously commit to an action. It feels like this is what you're saying. Am I on the right track right there? Absolutely. I think that's a, a really good example. And in the terms of the fire framework, a baseball player trying to hit the ball, it's F fast. Is it I irrelevant? Well, that depends what you think about baseball. <laughs> you know? uh, R, it's definitely repetitious and they have to learn it and they have to learn it through feedback because if they swung at the ball, but they never knew how well their swing turned out, they would never learn it. But yeah. by swinging over and over again with the feedback of, okay, did I hit it or not? Did it, was it a good hit? They learn over time to get that incredible intuition. And, and that brings me to the last letter, which is E, which stands for evolutionary. We are, after all, animals, and there's certain types of predictions and, and decisions that are kind of built into us. And so one example of this, if you hear a very loud noise very close to your head, you will have a startle response and you will kind of jump away. And that's probably a pretty good decision most of the time because, you know, maybe something's about to fall on you. Maybe someone's yelling and attacking you. Who knows? But it's probably a good idea to get out of there. Another example is like if you see some meat and it smells really rancid, do not eat it. <laughs> like Noted. Let me take brain, it. <laughs> exactly. But no, but that's, that's built into the human brain. You know, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. not something we have to learn, you know, so. No, I love, I love this very much because again, like um, I remember years ago uh, and there was a full decade of this, maybe more where people were just like, the books were all about how to not even worry about system one, how not to, how to get away from it, how to escape it, how to become pure beings of logic and reason. And mm -hmm. that was the whole idea of like a lot of those books. I feel like one of your big arguments is how about we learn how to use system one better or how to be better operators of metacognition in that way, even if I can't consciously, uh, if I'm not consciously experiencing the process of what's going on, that doesn't necessarily matter. I don't consciously experience the process of what's happening underneath the hood of my car either. And the you you label a couple of places where this is very useful. Brainstorming, predicting values and information. If you could jam on that for a minute, I'd love to hear more. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the really important uses of system one when you're making a reflective decision. So remember, reflective, reflective decision is when it's not fire. That means that, this, that you're not just going with your gut. But, but how are you incorporating your gut? Well, how do you know what you value, right? So it's so a good example of this. Imagine... Uh, there's something that you could tell to a friend, which would be the honest thing to say, but it would also hurt them. Hmm. This is a genuinely difficult decision. Like, do you be honest, which is good, or do you, uh, but it involves hurting your friend, which is bad, right? Hmm. It's an actual trade-off. Hmm. The only way you can really make that decision is to really reflect on your values and say, well, okay, what do I value more in the situation? Is it, is it better to be honest, or is it, even though that hurts someone? And, uh, and how do you know what your values are? Well, you have to carefully reflect. And so, for example, on clearthinking.org, our website, you can go on and take what we call our intrinsic values test. So it's a test that asks you many questions about what you value to help you get more clarity on it. And we actually, so we, we looked at what philosophers say about what humans intrinsically value, what psychologists say, what political scientists say, and so on. And we ran our own study where we create a little training module, teach people about intrinsic values, and then had them submit theirs. And we had 3,000 3, values submitted, and then we duplicated them and categorized them. So we ended up with about 22 categories of human values. I'm not going to say that, that there are literally none that don't fall into those categories, but that was all that we were able to find. Mm -hmm. And then so you could take this test to help you understand your values better. So that's just one example of where system one becomes very important, even in a system two driven decision. Yeah. So uh, that's, just, just, that's just available on your website right now? Yeah. Yeah. It's for free. All of our, we've got 40 tools, all free about covering all different topics. Oh, man. So the intrinsic values test is one of them. I'm going to finish asking you these about the other things, but since we're already on that topic, tell me more about this website and all the stuff you can do on it. This sounds like yeah. something everybody should go do right now. Press pause and go play with this. Tell me some stuff that's over there. 
Yeah, so it's clearthinking.org. Um, so give me some examples. We have a tool to help you form a new habit. It's called Daily Ritual. It's based on a study we ran where we actually recruited hundreds of people and each person was randomized to get five out of 22 habit techniques that we wanted to test. And then we actually tracked them over more than a month to see who actually succeeded at their habit. And so the tool Daily Ritual we built has all the stuff that we got that worked the best in our study. And we just packed it all into one tool and you can go use it for free on our website. Um, another one is called the Decision Advisor, which is a tool for helping you make those like big thorny life decisions. And so we actually, so one of the challenges about teaching people about cognitive biases is that they might learn about it in the abstract, but then are they actually gonna apply it in their real life decision? So we thought, well, instead of just teaching you about biases, which is useful, but maybe we can do better when it comes to decision-making by actually teaching you about biases during the decision. So during, so the decision advisor tool, it walks you through a big life decision you're making right now, and it teaches you about relevant biases as you're making the decision. Wow, that's awesome. That is so cool. Don't let me interrupt you. Keep going. Yeah, so th those are some of them. Another uh, fun one is our common misconceptions test. So we in it, we have 30 statements, 15 of which are common misconceptions, and 15 of which sound like they might be common misconceptions, but are actually true. And the way it works is you have to actually make bets on which ones are the common misconceptions, which ones are true. And then we're able to, based on the way you bet, we're able to analyze whether you're overconfident or underconfident. So, you know, when you were really confident and you bet more points, were you more likely to be right or were you actually not more likely to be right? So we analyze so it. Yeah. That's so, so good. Like that's, that's, that's <laughs> like, I'm like, uh, my heart grew one size bigger. The, beca <laughs> because that's, um, that's something I've been thinking about so much for so for for the last few years. It's like one of my biggest obsessions is that. And the, I had no idea you had a tool uh, already built around it. I think that is extraordinarily and amazing. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I just want to light a sparkler. It's, it's really cool. I, like no, I really appreciate that. And we had a funny thing happen after we launched the common misconceptions tool, which is this uh, hedge fund manager reached out to us with this very angry email saying that our tool had told them that he's overconfident and it's totally full of shit and he's not overconfident. <laughs> and then like a month later, he reached back out to us and he's like, oh, you know what? I'm really sorry. I actually realized you're right. I am uh, overconfident and I've been, I've been reflecting on it and now I'm going to change the way that I, that I, you know, make trades in my business. So that's oh, the kind man. of thing we want to hear. That is the best. Oh my God. Uh, like, look, any way I can help you in any way in this project, let me know because uh, this is it. That's it. Maybe we can collaborate on a tool. Let's, that would be really fun. I want to do this. Tool. I have an idea for, for us. Well, maybe we can just run it. <laughs> what I want to do is take, uh, and I'll give you, this is the, my elevator pitch for it is, I want to use deep fake technology to put news from sources that people find untrustworthy into the avatars of people they do find trustworthy. And I want to see how they respond to it. That's, some, that's a study I've been wanting to do for a long time. Oh, that's such a cool idea. So basically it'd be like your trusted news person on TV, but they'd be saying something from your, you know, this news source that you hate and see if I, I love that idea. It's so fun. I love it. I mean, there's, there's a simpler, that, that's a beautiful idea for a study. There's a simpler, much dumber version of that, which okay. is you, you just show them different uh, pieces of information, just claim it came from different sources and then right. the end, you debrief them and say, actually we were, I agree. That, from that I agree. Source. That's yeah. great. But my, the reason I want to do the deep fake thing is because I, I want it to be system one. I want it to be, uh, I, they yeah. just, it just bypasses all, uh, you know, filters. They're like, I, I, I look at that person and I can let down my defenses and just listen. And I mean, that's my hypothesis. And I would just, I would love to see that study done. Um, oh yeah. So uh, you, first of all, this website is, sounds tremendous and, and what you do sounds tremendous. And, uh, I know this is like 
like me on the podcast, just kind of separate from this. I'm saying, yes, I would love to help you and be part of all this. This sounds awesome. Um, oh, thank you. So we, oh, the brainstorming comes up a lot. Uh, there, um, famously, there have been books that have attempted to like, I think, capitalize on how much that was popular during sort of the early 2000s as a buzzword. But you like really get into it when you speak about how to use this fire system and then there's a way to apply it to brainstorming. I'm interested to see what you have to say because I bet you have a take I haven't heard. Yeah. So the way that I think about it is that tr- creativity is often viewed as this like kind of mysterious thing that just happens. You know, the, the muse speaks to you. And I view it very differently. I view it as a mental capacity that we have. And virtually any mental capacity we can improve at. You know, it's really hard to find one that we can't improve at by practicing. And I think creativity is no exception. So the way that I think about, for example, if you want to start a startup, generate a startup idea every day. Just <laughs> do it every day. And it, give yourself, you know, set a timer for 10 minutes. See if you can come up with something. And one of the funny things about trying to do that is it's often easier to be more specific. So if I just said, come up with a startup idea, like it's actually pretty, it's like pretty hard just based on that query. But if I say, okay, come up with a startup idea for something that you can, you keep in your pocket all day long and that it helps you with your well-being, it's actually kind of easier. So one trick is just to pick a random like sub area uh, that may be relevant to your interests and, and brainstorm off of that. A second trick that I like to use is just try, this is a, a commonly recommended one, but I think it's really valuable, is just not being critical during the brainstorming process. Just think of it as like get ideas out on paper mm-hmm. and then only later come back to them and actually see how good they are. Mm-hmm. If you try to like self-censor while you're generating them, it's generally very bad for creativity. Um, but but m- moreover, I think really what creativity is, is it's sort of querying the system one. It's, it's throwing over the, the wall different queries, be like, hmm, what could, what could a good startup idea be in this space? And then listening for what system one throws back and be like, oh, thanks, that's cool. Write it down. All right, give me another one. Throw it back over. And at first, you might find this is a struggle. But if you do it more and more, it actually becomes easier and easier until you can get in this habit of just, okay, give me another idea. Oh, okay, that one's cool. Give me another idea, et cetera. And so, for example, I have a personal goal of like of putting one idea on Twitter every single day. Um, and, you know, not to say that they're all original brilliant, they're certainly not, but by putting one idea every day on Twitter, it's just honing this, this idea generation muscle. And it doesn't even matter if you're, if you have an original take, what matters is that there's no, you, there's just your, your brain is a unique entity in this. And you're probably going to have a different voice, a different perspective. You'll be wrong in ways that other people aren't wrong. It'll just be interesting. If I'm going to write something on medium, even I don't go look to see if somebody else has already done it anymore, which I used to do that all the time. And it, and it could be a real hindrance to uh, just doing stuff, to just putting yourself out there and then evolving your ideas about things. Yeah. Well, just to give a little bit of a reframe there, I think what's really important is producing value that's not currently being produced, not being unique and, or not being novel. And so, so what I mean by that is let's say there's some topic that like 100 people have written articles about. But you can write a version of that article that for some audience is the best version of it. That's so right? good. Maybe, maybe the, for people like you or for me, maybe you had to learn the subject from scratch without a background. And so you can explain it to other people who are learning from scratch without a background. Right. So you're adding unique value in the world. Right. So th- that's how I think about it. I want to say things that are uniquely valuable, not things that are unique. That is that's it. That's the poll quote for this whole episode. That is good stuff. I love that. Um I uh, have just hit that point where we're talking where I'm like, I want to talk to you for the next six hours. Uh, but <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? That's the, that's the side effect of 
just meeting you in this way. Uh, you did give me some stuff that you wanted to, to talk about, and I'm going to at least go to one of them, which is uh, since we're kind of in that domain of cognitive biases, and um, I'm going to do a, I have never, oddly enough, like even though I've built a whole thing out of talking about that, I've never done anything on this podcast where we just went through the biases one by one. They just kind of come up here and there. And we talk about them here and there. I, I prefer to talk about research as it's coming out instead of going through that. I did something on logical fallacies that was really cool. And so next year, we're going to, I'm going to do like six full months. Of, we're just going to go through each cognitive bias. And, okay. and we're going to, I'm going to bring in like five experts for, and we'll just chunk them. Like five experts, we'll talk about these five. And then we'll do five experts for these five. And it'll be a really oh, fun that's series. that's amazing. That's going to be great. So as an introduction to that, we can, uh, we can use this conversation as a way to kind of get into it. Because you asked some interesting questions. Um, I don't think I've ever really thought in this way about these things. You were saying, if we talk about cognitive biases, um, you're talking about making our understanding of them more nuanced. And what do people who have learned about them commonly misunderstand about them? What are your thoughts there? And we can just kind of bounce back and forth. Yeah, so I think increasingly, due to your efforts and the efforts of others, people are now getting aware of, oh, wow, we have all these biases, you know, our minds make these mistakes systematically, and that's super useful, just that, that knowledge. But unfortunately, knowing about it doesn't mean you're going to actually correct for it. Yeah. And so that's one thing that I'm super interested in, is like, how do you go from like, okay, I've heard of this bias to, okay, I'm no longer making this bias, or at least I'm reducing the amount I make it. And one of the really depressing things is to hear Daniel Kahneman talk about this, because he's super <laughs> cynical. He's like, oh, yeah, we got biases and we're screwed. We can't. Yeah. He claims he's not less biased than anyone else. I don't believe him, but that's what he claims. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so if you think about what would it take to reduce the amount of a bias, the way that I break it down is that you have to be in a situation in real life you have to have a thought about that bias, like, oh, wait, could this be the sunk cost fallacy? You know, let's say you've been working on a project for a really long time and you're thinking, oh, man, it's not going that well. But like, I really you know, want to continue it. You know, it's like then you're going to you're going to hopefully notice some pattern of that and be like, huh, that kind of reminds me of the sunk cost fallacy. OK, that's step one. But you're not there yet. You're not done yet. Uh, step two is you have to be motivated to try to like actually correct for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Because you might realize the sunk cost fallacy, but actually feel no motivation you'd be like, no, 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 but I don't want to admit that I wasted all that time and effort. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so step two is you actually have to feel motivated to actually like try to apply a correction strategy. And then step three, you have to know what to do. Like, how do you override it? And, mm -hmm. you know, for the sunk cost fallacy, it might be saying, okay, I know that the way to analyze this is to just think about the future costs and benefits because the past costs and benefits are spent whether I continue with this project or not. Mm -hmm. And one nice little technique for doing that is to say, imagine I wasn't working on this project right now, but I had the opportunity to join at exactly the spot I'm in now. Would mm -hmm. I take the opportunity? And that's a nice reframe. It's like kind of a strategy you can use to help you think about, would I actually continue this if I'm only thinking about future costs and benefits? You know, uh, I, something about this that uh, recently was, in, was uh, introduced to me by uh, Hugo Mercier, was that the uh, a lot of these biases that cause us to have these problems in reasoning often take place at the level of the individual reasoner, but their impact is mitigated once you add two, three, four, or five more reasoners to the mix. And he used sunk cost fallacy as an example that you have an individual reasoner faced with like cognitive reflection type tasks, and they will often commit the fallacy. But if you just bring in one more person and they both look at the same problem, the it, it usually is the incidence of it is lowers by sometimes 75%, which can, he makes the case that a lot of what people wrote about for the last decade about 
problems in human reasoning or problems in individual human reasoning with no a person to bounce ideas off of. And when you are attempting to justify your, your thinking to another person, they will very quickly identify the, the problems in your thinking. And you're much more likely to take that feedback and adjust your thinking than if you were basically arguing with yourself. Because if you argue with yourself, you win. <laughs> you always win. I'm wondering if you have noticed that in your work. Yeah, so it's, it's absolutely true that other people can help us catch our biases. And one of the cool things about it is that we might all be biased, but maybe our biases aren't all pointing exactly the same direction. Mm. Plus, if, if you're not the one deciding, then it might be easier to be less biased because right? you're not attached to the thing. So, so it's absolutely true by like asking people for their opinion and so on, it can help. But one of the challenges with group decision making is that then we get this whole other cause of bias, which is basically social phenomena. Mm. You know, you get you get a bunch of pe people in a room to make like a you know, decision. You think, oh, having 10 people in the room, that's got to be better than having two people in the room. But suddenly with 10 people in the room, it's like, well, who's the highest social status person there and who talks the loudest? And and, you know, also everyone might think that that they all are, you know, everyone else agrees, even though, in fact, everyone's just too scared to speak up because mm -hmm. one of the people is an asshole and so on. So, so you know, it, I don't think it, it so much solves the problem as it changes the nature of the problem. That's good. Yeah, it introduces uh, you know, people in groups. Then we start having all the tribal things go in, which is the buzzword right now. But the yeah, group dynamics come into play and then social forces, social costs pluralistic ignorance we did a, my favorite episode of this entire show was about pluralistic ignorance which was only that like people are willing to die for a cause even if the cause eliminates the group to which they're owing their allegiance to so everything it burns the whole thing down but you cannot stop yourself from being motivated to engage in that behavior because broadly speaking evolutionarily speaking it was more advantageous to groups to do that and again like if only by knowing that can we even start to create a strategy against it it reminds me, Laurie Santos created the um, the G.I. Joe fallacy, which is what you were kind of mentioning earlier. The knowing knowing is not half the battle when it comes to <laughs> biases. Uh, and knowing that knowing is not half the battle is also not half the battle. Like just being aware of this is not enough. In other words, the there has to be like an actual hardcore strategy, a pilot's checklist of sorts. And then even then there has to be the motivation to use it and then the inclination to do it. And then you have to overcome the social cost to do it. There's a lot involved. We've been working on a strategy for trying to encode patterns in people's minds so that information gets triggered at the right moment. Um, so actually, we did a study on this related to happiness where we had people pick an object in their environment uh, that they see maybe like five to 10 times a day. Like, okay, maybe five to 10 times a day, you know, you pass through your doorway or something like that, whatever it is. And then we would try, we get them to practice associating that with some mental activity. In this case, for example, thinking of something you're grateful for or being mindful. And so then we, we would train people so that when they actually pass their doorway, they'd think of something they're grateful for. And we would use this to try to bootstrap people to be happier. And we actually ended up running a study. Um, uh, and over three days, actually, people were, did end up feeling happier over the three days when we were trying this. And I, I think the idea also applies um, for cognitive biases. And this is something we've been exploring. How do you create that pattern in someone's mind that, so that when they're going about uh, their life, they encounter a situation and it suddenly triggers you know, sunk cost fallacy or planning fallacy or <laughs> overconfidence or, you know, it, it causes it to pop into their mind based on a pattern in the world. You, here's something that's great. Uh, and uh, you, you asked other times when cognitive biases are actually useful. And, you know, my immediate answer to that, but I'm going to let you answer and talk about it. But my immediate answer to that is, yeah, uh, it wouldn't still be in our heads if it wasn't adaptive in some way. Uh, or they're not um, so detrimental to our evolutionary survival that they've been uh, you know, slowly de 
you know, devolved from us. Our selective pressures have not eliminated them all the way yet. So I'm wondering, and when you think about that, what are some cognitive biases that seemed to be useful and how are they useful? Yeah. So I agree with you that in our evolutionary environment, they probably were more useful more of the time. But I think even today, a lot of them are useful a lot of the time. And so really it's about thinking not, is this a bad way to make a decision, but rather, when is this a bad way to make a decision and trying to understand the nuance of that. So just, just to give you an example, take overconfidence, which is a really common bias. You know, people will often rate themselves as better than others, for example, in many different ways, even though, you know, uh, it's, it's very possible for 70% of people to think that they're better than average or something, but it does, it's not statistically possible for 70% to think they're better than median at something. And yet many, many people will report that. Um, so take, take that idea. Well, overconfidence is actually useful in quite a number of situations. For example, if you think that you might give up on something and you really, really don't want to give up, being overconfident can actually help you stick with it, right? It can kind of be selectively useful. Another example is if you're trying to inspire other people, being overconfident can help inspire them because it turns out we're very reactive to people's confidence level. At the same time, where it gets very dangerous is it in there are plenty of situations where it's very, very important to actually understand the way the world really is. And that's where overconfidence is devastating. Mm. And, and so it's like, you know, it's not that overconfidence is bad full stop. It's a, it, it's in some cases it actually serves us, but in a bunch of cases it totally burns us. And if we're not careful, you know, we might get totally burned. That's interesting. There's a, I read somewhere, it was a, I forget the name of the book. It was a book about um, network science that mentioned um, so I think they were talking about the dark triad even and how, you know, CEOs and entrepreneurs often really benefit from the dark triad of Machiavellianism and, um, sociopathy and, uh, narcissism because, uh, they don't really care what other people think. Uh, or if they do care what they think, they only care what they think in terms of how does how do I leverage that to make my business more successful? And so, yeah, out there in, in interpersonal relations, this is a dangerous person. We might even have ostracized that person from our group if we had identified that person as a problem. But in a economic system and the one we currently have, it can be very beneficial for that person to just forge ahead and just do what they're going to do and and uh, burn bridges and do what it takes to get ahead. And a lot of them end up being famous figures in our like uh, in the mythology of CEOs and business and everything. And it's a great example of depending on the environment in which that bias is manifesting, in which those personality traits are manifesting, it could it could go from being detrimental to being extremely useful. Um, I'm in yeah, resident- it, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, to, well, you know, to that point, so what, what should we take away from that? You know, if, if overconfidence can serve us in some situations, but not in others, you know, what do we do about that? And what, the way I like to think about it is that, first of all, we might have false limiting beliefs. Like we might believe, for example, that we're worthless or that, mm. you know, we're a failure or we're a loser or whatever. And a really good way to boost your confidence that's not irrational and is not, you know, self-delusionary is try to correct these like false limiting beliefs you have. So that's a really nice, like easy win that you can work on. A second thing is that in many situations, you can reframe something slightly to take it from like delusional to non-delusional, but still very confident. And so an example of this, I work with CEOs because at Sparkway, we actually start new companies and uh, we recruit CEOs for those new products that we build. And so sometimes there'll be this question and it's like, well, you know, if we claim we're the best in the world at this thing, that could be like, you know, 
they're kind of delusional. But if we claim our goal is to be the best in the world at this thing, mm. that's completely true. That is literally our goal. And you can be totally confident that that is our goal. And yet those two statements are, we're the best in the world and our goal is to be the best in the world. They can both come across as extremely confident and sound really strong. And so it's just slight changes in language can take it from like delusionally overconfident to just, you know, very strong and uh, convincing. So try, I try to make those kind of changes too. That's that's great. That's like you you transmuted uh, lead into gold. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Framed in the other way, I had a very strong, strongly positive emotional response to that. I would trust that person. I dig that a lot. I uh, there's a thing in psychology. You've, I'm sure you've heard of it. Depressive realism, which is people. Some people have a setting. I think it's like twenty percent of people, or so eight eighteen percent of people. Um, can't feel overconfident. And the result of that is they have a very, they do very well on certain tests where they have a very accurate estimation of their abilities, a very accurate estimation of what might happen when they do X, what Y will follow from They're They have a pretty honest, clear view of reality. But the problem with that is it's very depressing and they don't, they often will not commit to projects that other people will commit to. And they don't sort of roll the dice. And, uh, it seems to be not common. It seems to be that we are, most people do not have that feeling. Most of us are, as you say, somewhat overconfident and feel that we're above average in some ways and in ways that would be impossible. And it seems like, well, it's adaptive. It must be. Well, one of my favorite reframes for that situation is, you know, let's say you're doing a big project or starting a startup or something like this, like realistically, you know, there's gotta be a decent chance of that failing. Like if you really, you know, if you consider base rates and, and you really think about it, but you can reframe it as I'm doing this process where I'm going to try this thing. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to correct those mistakes. I'm going to get better. And, and if I stick with this process long enough, something good will come out of it. Maybe it will be a really successful startup or maybe I'll just learn a ton and I'll end up working in a cool space that I wouldn't have otherwise, uh, et cetera. And so you can have a lot of belief that like the process will eventually produce uh, good outcomes. And actually that's true. If you do it, if you keep learning from all the mistakes, whereas you can't be that, that confident that this exact product that I'm trying to sell is actually going to be, you know, a billion dollar company. Are there, you asked earlier when you were sending out ideas for us to talk about, are there some things that people think are biases that are not actually, what do you mean? Yeah. So take something like the, um, availability heuristic, which is this idea that, um, how likely we think something is or how frequent we think something is has to do with our ability to recall it from memory. Mm. And uh, Kahneman and Tversky did a really lovely study on this, where what they did is they, they split pe their participants into two groups at random, and half of them saw a bunch of names of famous women and unfamous men, and the other group saw the reverse. They saw a bunch of names of famous men and unfamous women. And at the end, they would say, did this list contain more men on it or women? Mm -hmm. And even though in both cases, it was this, basically the same number of men and women, it, when they saw, when the list had more famous women, they thought there were more women on the list. When they, when they're more famous men, they thought there were more men on the list. And the reason is because of memory, right? It's much, the famous people are much more memorable. So when people were reflecting, like how many men versus women were in that, if they're famous people of that, of that gender, they could remember it more easily, right? So, so this is kind of illustrates the availability heuristic. The thing is, imagine you were trying to design an artificial intelligence that was going to try to make decisions. Yeah. How would you actually design it without something that's at least somewhat like the availability heuristic? Mm -hmm. Like the availability heuristic is really, really what it's saying is that your brain is running some really complicated algorithm to try to decide an answer to a complicated question, like mm -hmm. how likely is something to occur? What the availability heuristic just shows us is that 
that algorithm is not perfect at all, you know, at all times. There's sometimes it make mistakes, but it would be incredibly hard, maybe impossible to design such an algorithm that never made mistakes. And so it's really, a, so the way I think about the availability heuristic is not that it's like inherently irrational or something like this. It's just like, that's, you would have to design some heuristic to sort through all your experience to make a decision about how likely something is, right? Uh, yeah. If you're going to design artificial intelligence that has an associative architecture that can think very complex things and parse all this insane amount of information coming in at all times and decide what is important and weight it in different directions, you're going to end up with things like the availability heuristic. And maybe it will spin off that you hear about three shark attacks and you think that, oh no, I better not go swimming, even though shark attacks are, are very unlikely, but it comes to your mind so easily. Like there will be spinoffs of that that will require you to go into what we were talking about earlier, system two thinking. But in general, I wouldn't want to get rid of the availability heuristic. I think if that's the argument we're making here, like it's not, I wouldn't want to lose that. Right. So you need some algorithm to sort through the incredible masses of information to figure out what's relevant. And, you know, I'm not saying there couldn't be a better algorithm than the, than the ones in our brain, but the ones in our brain are pretty darn good. Sure, they're not perfect, but you know, some algorithm has to sort through that stuff and decide what's worth thinking about and what, what's yeah. worth retreating, right? And, and second by second uh, on top of that. Um, you, another question you asked was, um, are there some forms of cognitive bias that are actually rational? Now, this is, um, this is something that I've thought about a lot. Uh, again, Hugo Mercier really like took me to the mat on all this and, and, and it really changed the way I feel about a lot of things, um, altered my attitude. And then by downstream from that, I updated my beliefs and, and then I guess I'll for you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he altered my attitude downstream from that changed my beliefs. And then the total construction of all that together made my values resort. So I, uh, he totally from top to bottom altered my nervous system and, he made the case that like so much of this is not irrational. Like that's such a silly word. He doesn't even like that word. Uh, that it is very rational to be biased oftentimes. That's a different thing to be talking about rationality versus what we're showing, demonstrating in that, whether or not you made a metacognitive leap. I want to hear what you have to say about that. Well, you know, that that's interesting because I think it depends partly on semantics. Like what do we mean by rational? Mm-hmm. Um, and if we, if by rational, we mean what would like a perfectly rational Bayesian agent do that had unlimited computational resources and could apply Bayes' role across all possible hypotheses, I do think we're very irrational by that standard. But that's, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, sure. We're not even close to rational by that standard. Um, now, that being said, I think sometimes things that we call biased, there's, they're rational in the sense that they're serving the interests of us as an agent. Um, so, so take tribalism, for example. There's many times when people are, you know, having an argument and the, you could say, well, the person's not being rational. They're not updating on the evidence that the other person's giving them. But then the question is, is it actually in their interest to update on the evidence, right? And, yep. and I think surprisingly often it's not. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, you know, I think Julia Galef has just a wonderful concept around this. She has this idea of soldier mindset and scout mindset. I love it. Yes, let's talk about it. Yeah, so soldier mindset imagine you're a soldier and you're just trying to win, right? You don't really care about what's true. You're just trying to beat the other person. Scout mindset, you're, you're in this mindset of trying to figure out what is actually there in the world. And a lot of times when people are discussing things, they're actually in soldier mindset, not in scout mindset. Yep. And what that means is that they're actually just trying to win. It, to say that they didn't update on the evidence is kind of silly because that's not what, they're not in the game of trying to figure out what's true in that moment. And what I like to say, you know, really riffing on uh, Julia's awesome ideas is that if you're trying to have a good debate, the first question to ask yourself is, are you in scout mindset? Because if you're in soldier mindset, then 
then you're, you're not really having a, a productive debate. You might be able to beat someone, but you're not having a productive debate. The second question is, are they in scout mindset? Because if you're in scout mindset and they're not, well, then they're not ready to have a productive conversation. And so really what you should be doing is trying to work to get them into scout mindset. Yeah. Once yeah. you're both in scout mindset, now you can begin to talk about evidence and updating and all that. That's so good. You have to, you know, we're, if we're looking at motivations and goals, accuracy goals versus belonging goals, accuracy goals almost never win because evolutionarily speaking, this is Dan Cahan talking about this. Would you rather be right or would you rather stay in your group and be able to be fed and sheltered and protected from, you know, lions and stuff like um, that goal has to be met. And if updating your if if examining the evidence in a certain way threatens your belonging goals, you're just going to intuitively switch over to no, 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 thanks. Like like when I'm comfortable, when I'm able, I may pursue accuracy goals. But until that, we can't. And he would make the leap that the legal systems, uh, the science institutions of science uh, the institutions of academia are sort of places where he said it is safe to pursue accuracy goals here. Like that was the whole point of establishing that institution was so that you could get away from belonging goals. Though you can't 100%. I mean, it, it seeps in no matter what. But I love the scout soldier way of looking at it. It's a good way to pull it all down from all those um, too many word, <laughs> too too elaborated ideas. Um if I if I can just uh, speculate for if I could just speculate for a second, so I imagine you're familiar with this idea of like the backfire effect, where uh, it's claimed that sometimes when you try to convince people of a thing, it actually makes them hold on to their views more tightly instead mm -hmm. of actually updating. Now, my understanding is that the, the evidence for that is somewhat shaky. Like sometimes people find it, sometimes they don't find it. And I, I have a hypothesis about this. It's totally speculative, but I'll, I'll just throw it out there, which is that imagine someone's trying to convince you of something and you're convinced that they're like the enemy or they're in the opposite team as you. Like that, I could easily see myself if I'm feeling threatened by someone I view as my enemy as like digging in my heels. And be mm -hmm. like, whereas if someone is trying to convince you of a thing and you view them as your friend trying to help you on your team, well, then you're going to probably listen and you're going to be much more likely to update. And so my, my speculation is that the scout and soldier idea actually ties in with this backfire effect and when you might expect it and when you might not get it. This is the study I want to do, man. The one I'm telling you about with the deep fakes. Like I want to, I, love it. <laughs> I, I want to divide it into enough groups that we can see that take place because, uh, I feel very strongly that we will see new, the new evidence will be added to the pile as to what we're even talking about with backfire. I had Tom Wood on the show and, we, I did a four part series on the backfire effect. So like a six hour series. And it was really cool because the, the th first three parts, the last part just plows through it saying, maybe not. And it was really, it was really cool because they tried to replicate it and it didn't replicate quite well. And what the, the end result of it was, and I had all the scientists involved in this, including the original backfire effect researchers, Brendan Nyan and, uh, and all the rest, they, it was what I was talking about way earlier. They came back around to what we were calling backfire wasn't belief backfire. It was attitude backfire. A good example of that would be with vaccines. For, you ask an anti-vaxxer, uh, you give an anti-vaxxer a, a shitload of evidence about vaccines from all sorts of different ways, written, video evidence, trustworthy sources. And what you'll get is that person will say, if previously they said vaccines cause autism, at the end of all that, they'll say, I now understand that vaccines do not cause autism. And then you ask them, are you willing, how willing are you to vaccinate your children? And they will be even less likely to vaccinate their children. So you have updated their belief, but you have pushed their attitude into an even deeper valence. 
And so you have changed their mind, but you've changed their mind in ways that that phrase may not have encapsulated for you. You, you did update their beliefs, but you, when you updated their values, you made them stronger in the direction that you didn't want them to go. And that happened, that's what, and personally, that's the way I look at the backfire effect is oftentimes what you're looking at is an attitudinal backfire, not a belief backfire. And that's, that tends to be, that was sort of missorted in, in the, when they were doing the original research into like weapons of mass destruction. That wasn't even what the people were answering. They weren't answering if there were weapons of mass destruction. They were answering, how do I feel about this war? And how I feel about that war is an attitudinal response. They're like, I feel very strongly about it. And that's driven by in-group stuff. Uh, belonging goals. I could talk about that forever. <laughs> no, I love that. And I think that basing on attitudes is such a cool way to look at that and really insightful. Um, I'll just add one other thing that I think can also be a useful frame on a topic like that, which is that if you think about our belief system as like a temple with multiple layers, mm -hmm. you know, you, your beliefs being the individual columns, right? And, you know, you've got layer built on layer built on layer. You know, people, what people will do is they'll say, why do you believe something? You know, why do you believe X? Why do you believe global warming is not happening? And someone will throw out a response. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you can view that as them like pointing to one of the columns. And then let's say you absolutely destroy that column. And you expect the house to tumble down, but it's like, nope. nope. That column turns out doesn't bear much weight or if nope. any. Maybe it's not a load-bearing column. Yep. So there are, I think, if you were to really study someone's belief structure, you would find there are load-bearing columns. But they're not necessarily going to be the first thing they point to when you say, why do you believe Absolutely. Something? And that so you is, can't just stop at their first response, right? No, that is, you're absolutely right. Uh, that is exactly, that is exactly it. That is backed up by hardcore science. That the, 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 what people demonstrate, what people will, when you ask someone to justify their belief to you, what they tell you is what they believe will justify it in your eyes. And they'll go to the lowest hanging fruit they can find, which will be one of these tidbits of trivia that, in their mind was what, you know, if they're in the shower imagining arguing with somebody, that's what comes to their mind. But it, Totally. And, avail and availability heuristic. Like, what can they even think of first, right? Right. But th the most the most effective persuasive techniques know that. They acknowledge that. The, per the person, the interlocutor knows that. And they will ignore those things that people say and try to get deeper and deeper and deeper until they find the actual thing that is underpinning it, which the other person may not be aware of, or if they are aware of it, they've never articulated. And getting a person to do that then opens them up to updating that with evidence in some way or another. And even then, though, it may have no, it may not affect their attitude. So you have to think of it as a multiple system here, like this is, or it's like a cake. That's what how um, Matt Dillahunty described it to me. It's like a cake, you know, like it has many ingredients, but I can't necessarily extract those ingredients when I'm trying to work a persuasive technique. So as an attitudes, values, I try to, I try to boil it down to attitudes, beliefs, and values, but there are many more categories of mind we can get into. And, but when you're changing one, it may not necessarily change the other, or if it does, the system all changes in a way that's complicated. And it's not this so simple as saying I went from zero to 100 on my confidence level for this one thing. There's so many other things that play into it. Well, I think we also forget about the whole network of beliefs because imagine you're challenging someone on their beliefs about vaccines causing autism, right? And you might think, well, what's such a, you know, what's, what's the big deal about changing your mind on that? Well, maybe most of the people that they hang out with also believe that thing. And maybe the experts that they trust tell them that vaccines cause autism. So there's a lot more at stake than you see. On the surface, you're like, yeah, why can't you just stop believing that? With a deeper level, it's like going to cause them to question the people that they view as experts. It's going to cause them now to have a belief that's different from all the, the people they're hanging out with and they think of it as their friends. It might cause social rejection. And I think the subconscious, you know, the system one, there's a lot going on there. And I think that one thing it does is it predicts the consequences. And it's Absolutely. just constantly predicting the consequences. Absolutely. And there's a big consequence of stopping believing something. Huge. Sense. 
Um, and at the most fundamental level, this is, this is, um, I haven't even put this podcast out, but, um, but the, the attitude, I mentioned it a little bit cause I had a, a, a vaccine expert, um, talk about this a little bit, but the, the attitude most likely is driven by this. Here's how it usually plays out is that you, we all have these settings. If you want to use the, um, the, the high, the Jonathan Haidt system of, uh, you know, uh, moral, moral fr- framework, moral yeah. foundations. So whether or not that like accurately maps on to what we're talking about, it is a good first volley into trying to understand what's going on in the mind in that way. And a person with a very specific volume knob setting in those foundations, they react very strongly to the idea of a foreign object being inserted into the body of their child with a needle, which is on the authority of the state, which they had no say so in, which is involved with a um, scientific principles they have no understanding of. All that combines into this very visceral emotional reaction and the attitude they have toward what you're talking about, if they reduce it down to the word vaccine, very negative. And then I ask you, defend that negative emotion. Well, how could they? This stuff is beyond the fence line like you're talking about. That stuff's in that dark spot. And so they're going to be like, well, I don't like it because they're never going to say all the things I just said. They're going to say, I don't like it because vaccines cause autism or blah, 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 blah. You remove vaccines cause autism. It doesn't take away that feeling. They have to find some other way to like express themselves. And that's now you take those people, you put them on the internet, they all meet each other and they form a, uh, a social unit around that intuitive response around that emotional response. And then you add the layer of social costs on top of it. Eventually you've got this incredibly complex neurological cathedral of ideas and feelings and emotions. And you're, you want to just take a research paper and say, look at this and expect that person to go, Oh, well, I was wrong. (laughs) That's not going to happen. It'll never happen. Absolutely. I think I, I think I got this idea from Catherine Schultz that in order to change your mind, you have to be willing to deal with uncomfortable feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot, about the big things, you know, I, okay, sure, you can change your mind about little things you don't care about. That's easy. But about the big things, it's going to cause you probably a significant level of discomfort to even truly consider that you might be wrong, let alone to actually change. Uh, and, you know, not everyone's prepared to do that all the time. That's right. And Kahan uh, did a paper about that, that, that there's probably if you put people on this giant spectrum and you get this bell curve of human uh, personality traits, there's a type of person who is very okay with that feeling. And they're either, they either they don't feel that uncomfortable or when they do feel uncomfortable, they like it. And he called that he, he labeled it that as scientific curiosity, but we could label it anything you want. And he was able to sort people into categories where their people are very high on that factor. And those people were the ones who are most likely, no matter what they believed, if they saw evidence that, that uh, suggested they might be incorrect or their attitude might need adjusting, they were most likely to update right then and there versus people that were very low on that standard. So, yeah. That's really, that's really cool. My, my trick for that is I have a self-identity as a person that changes my mind. So even if it hurts me at first, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get so many self-identity points from changing my mind that it like, carries me forward and, and, you know, and it actually ends up being a positive experience. This is, a na- this is a beautiful natural segue into my final question because that makes me think of consistency bias uh, and uh, you have a identity and also a forward public facing persona for which you might experience shame or social costs that says I'm the kind of person that would change their mind. And so you can be consistent in that regard by being inconsistent in what you do or do not say is true. And that's a good example of how a bias can be preferable sometimes. If you could talk about that. Ah, yes. 
Um, well, well, there's the social reasons definitely that we mentioned. Another reason is that biases often represent heuristics that allow us to make decisions quickly. Um, and so, you know, if you go back to this idea to do a callback to uh, my fire framework, F-I-R-E, you know, one of the types of decisions where we wanna rely on our gut is F, fast decisions, right? Um, and so biases are actually a very fast way to do a pretty good job a lot of the time. And when we're navigating complex situations under you know, stress, that actually might be sometimes what, exactly what we need. Um, so the way I think about it is when you get to the really important decisions where it will really burn you uh, to be wrong, then that's what you want to double check your bias. You know, if you're doing the cognitive reflection test and it's asking you, you know, uh, a bat and a ball cost a dollar and ten together. You know, the the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? You know, what's basically happening is your your system one is throwing out an answer really quickly that you know, oh, a dollar. You know, it's it's probably you know relevant here. So I'm distracted. I get ten cents, um, and. If that's just on a, a silly quiz, who cares, really? You know, you might as well go with your gut. But let's say this is actually a really important test that's going to determine whether you get entered into, you know, the school you want to go. Hmm. Well, then you want to kick your reflective decision-making into high gear and be like, hmm, okay, let me just make sure I'm not falling into a bias here. Let me work it through systematically. Um, so that's how that's kind of how I think about the interplay. I love it. Oh, my God. I uh, obviously... I could talk to you all day about this. I'm actually exhausted. Um, the, <laughs> uh, thank you for giving me more time than I said I'd take. And also, uh, let's jam a whole lot more on all this stuff. This is really, it's my it's whole so life. Fun. It's my whole life. And it's all, it's, I really, really care about it a great deal. And um, not just the popularizing of it, but that next step. At what point do we stop labeling this and doing something? And uh, I love that you're in that vanguard of like, okay, now we know this stuff happens. Now what? Like, it's, <laughs> do we just go around going, ha ha, look, you, you did it, your confirmation by it or, or what now what? Um, and you're like in that now what group of people. And it takes a lot of effort. I've seen people try all sorts of things. You're doing things that are actually making an impact. And I think that's really hard. Um, and also to continue to do that, knowing how hard it is, is very admirable. And I think it's super cool. If you could um, sort of, as a final statement, um, reiterate what clearthinking.org is and how people can go there and what they can get out of it and, and what you offer and all that stuff. Yeah, just check out our website, clearthinking.org. Uh, we have got literally over 40 free tools that cover all these topics we talked about today. Overconfidence, decision-making, habit formation, many different types of biases. Um, and, and everything on the site's free. So it's all for you, you to check out. We also just launched a podcast called Clear Thinking with Spencer yeah. Greenberg. So uh, love for you to check that out as well. Basically, the format is we bring on a brilliant person and we try to have a fun discussion about ideas. And so, yeah, it's, it's really fun. So, yeah, I hope, I hope you get a lot of our, out of our site. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you so much for all your time. Thank you so much for what you do. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find show notes for this episode. We are also on Facebook at slash youarenotsosmart. You can follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. For all of Spencer's links, they're at the front of the show you can go back through all of those again. Uh, and if you'd like to support this show, it's a one-person operation. 
and your support means everything. So if you go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart, pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free, but the higher amounts get you posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other things. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. The interstitial music was by Jonathan, J-N-A-T-H-Y-N. So much new stuff coming up. I have a ton of material. I have interviews with all sorts of interesting people and some special episodes and some special topics, including persuasion, which is one I'm going to work on for quite a while. All that coming up soon. I can't wait to show it all to you. Tell everyone you know about this show. That's the most helpful thing of all. I really appreciate when you do share You're Not So Smart episodes and ideas all across social media. All right. See you soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.